The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, we are in Romans 1. This is our fourth week uh, in our series, our, our journey through the book of Romans. Of course, we have a long ways to go, and, um, and uh, today we're going to be in verses 16 and 17 the theme statement of the book of Romans, uh, but for the sake of context, I want to begin reading in verse 13. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Verses 16 and 17 are are two of the most important, wonderful verses in all of Scripture. And if you've grown up in the church, if you've read the Bible much, you're you're probably at least somewhat familiar with these verses. I I preached through them about five years ago now. I doubt any of you remember that, Uh, but uh, I preached them on the anniversary of the Reformation that year, uh, 500th anniversary. Uh, But wonderful verses, powerful verses, And, and to help us appreciate them, I want to look at them today through the perspective of two of the most influential, significant figures in church history. The first is Martin Luther. And uh, Martin Luther uh, was born in Germany in 1483 into a very different world from the one that we live in today. It was, as we commonly call today, the Dark Ages. And, um, And it was called the Dark Ages for a variety of reasons, but among those is the fact that the Roman Catholic Church dominated a very dark religious scene. Specifically, uh, most people believed in God, probably really didn't have an option in Europe in that day, but while they believed in God, they, they knew very little about Him. It was actually illegal to read the Bible in a common language. And, uh, and if, you do, if you could read the Latin Bible, the Latin Vulgate, the sanctioned Bible of the church, the church taught you that you couldn't understand it for yourself. So it's hard to, you needed the church to tell you what it meant, so why read the Bible if you can't get anything out of it unless the church tells you what it means? And when you went to church, the church services were all in Latin. So if you don't even know how to read and know very little of your own language, most people had no clue what was going on when they went to the Mass every week in that time. And, and so they learned very little about God, and what they did learn about God was that God was, was not a benevolent father. A gracious God, instead they learned of a God who was more of a, a distant judge, who was very hardly involved in their lives at all. And people did believe in grace. It's not as if the church didn't teach some level of grace, but, but the grace that they taught was very different from our own, from how we understand it. So a common slogan in Luther's day would have been that God will not deny grace to those who do their best. 
God will not deny grace to those who do their best. Now, now that was meant to give reassurance that, that if you do your best for God, God will fill in the gaps. But, but ultimately, it still left people depending on themselves to merit or achieve the favor of God so that he would make up the difference. So people went to Mass. They confessed their sins. They, they tried to live righteous lives. They did all of these things in an effort to, to earn the favor of God. And Martin Luther was raised on that theology. And he became a monk when he was a young man in hopes of earning the favor of God. But we're going to see today that no matter how hard he tried, he just never could find peace, never could find rest. Until he began studying Romans and Galatians, and God began transforming his understanding of who God is and of man's relationship to him. And and God especially used this text to transform Luther's thinking. And I think his, his story just brings a wonderful perspective to what Paul has to say here. And then a second a essential perspective for our text is Paul's story. So verses 13 through 15 tell us that, as we've talked about already, that, that Paul is, is nearing the end of his ministry and he wants to go preach the gospel in the city of Rome. And in verses 16 and 17 explain why Paul was not ashamed to preach the gospel. Now, we might see that and think, well, of course Paul wasn't ashamed to preach the gospel. He's Paul. I mean, he's just a machine. No one can scare Paul. Of course, he's just going to walk into town and preach the gospel. But we have to understand how foreign the gospel was and how offensive the gospel was to, to Roman culture and how intimidating it actually would have been to preach the gospel in Rome. And of course, not just for Paul, but for his Roman audience. So for example, you know, Rome is, a, is the seat of power in the world at that day, and, and Rome saw itself as the seat of all power, salvation, blessing, and deliverance. So, so Caesar demanded that all people worship him as Lord and Savior. Curios soter. You know, two, I mean, the two words that show up in the New Testament all the time, those are the exact words that Caesar said people were to worship him as. As well, Rome saw itself as the seat of all wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. They didn't need someone else to tell them what was right and wrong. And Rome was also built on firm power structures. And the people at the top prided themselves that they were at the top, and no one was going to ascend that ladder, and they used their power to oppress and take advantage of those who were beneath them. But the gospel, of course, you can imagine, or you can probably guess and see, understand, it it denies all those things, right? Because the gospel says that Jesus is the exclusive Lord and Savior, and that he became the Lord and Savior by dying a humiliating death on the cross, and then rising again. Now, now both of those things were were terribly offensive to the Romans. They could not imagine a, a powerful Lord being crucified. Roman citizens could not even be crucified. It was considered beneath even the lowest Roman citizen. And resurrection from the dead, that was pure nonsense in in the dualistic worldview of the Romans. The gospel also defied the Roman thirst for power by by calling for for the unity of, of all people equally at the foot of the cross. So, so Paul is bringing a gospel to Rome that stands diametrically opposed to some of the most fundamental assumptions and values of the Roman people. 
But Paul refused to be ashamed. So verses 16 and 17 explain why Paul was not ashamed and why you shouldn't be either to preach the gospel of Christ. So, so I'd like to highlight four glorious reasons why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. The first reason is, is that the gospel has power to save. So, so verse 16 again says, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, now to appreciate that statement, that it is, the power, that it is powerful to save, we, we need to first ask, why do we need to be saved? If we don't know what we're being saved from, then salvation doesn't mean a whole lot. So, so, so to answer that question, we have to begin with the fact that God is righteous. Now, verse 17 mentions the fact that God is righteous. And, and Romans 1 through 4 are going to repeatedly emphasize that God is absolutely righteous, that he is without sin. Now, 1 John 1, 5 adds that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's an incredible verse to, to really think about, right? That there is not a, in, in even the faintest hint of darkness in God. And because of that, Habakkuk 2, verse 13 says, Of God you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. And, and, and that is just incredible. And, and frankly, it's, it's incomprehensible for us because we are sinners, you know, look over at chapter 3 and look at how Paul describes humanity in verses 10 through 18. Romans 3, 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of bitterness and cursing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Those verses are really hard to stomach for us, aren't they? I, mean, I don't like to think of myself that way, and I doubt you like to think of yourself that way either. And yet that's how God describes all of humanity. And God says that no one can measure up to the righteousness and holiness of God. Now, now I imagine that, that very few people, I, I would imagine that no one in here would, would disagree with the fact that you are not righteous like God is. I think pretty much everyone understands that, that yeah, I'm not perfect. I have sin at some level. But we do probably, and many people have a hard time, with what Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, that's a very hard verse for most people to stomach because they would say, Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, I know I've got problems, but, but wrath from God? I don't deserve God's wrath. I'm a pretty good guy. And certainly, I'm not deserving of eternal destruction in hell. No way. But the Bible is clear that a just God cannot ignore a single sin. He cannot just turn a blind eye to any of it. God must judge 
every sin, or he is not just. And Martin Luther became more and more troubled by this very reality as, during his time as a monk. So in 1512, he, he, went, he was sent to the city of Wittenberg to teach Bible exposition at Wittenberg University. And, and part of his job there was, was to teach uh, through the books of Romans and Galatians. And, and during his time, uh, as he studied Romans, when, when he read Romans 1 verse 17, he assumed that Paul meant that Luther must perfectly achieve the righteousness of God. That, that the gospel is, the good news of the gospel is that you must be righteous like God is, and if you are righteous like God is, then you can be saved. And so Luther set about to achieve the righteousness of God. And he tells us in his writings that, that, that he took extreme steps. He, he would fast for days at a time. And he would sleep without blankets, even in the cold winter nights of Germany. Uh, he would confess, he would spend hours, sometimes daily, in the confession booth, confessing every sin he could possibly think of, and then trying to confess every wrong motive, and even at times confessing his wrong motives and how he was confessing his sins. Because he grasped just how holy and pure God is, and so he was trying to achieve it. He later said, I kept the rules so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. And yet the more he tried to achieve the righteousness of God, the more he was devastated to realize that it was absolutely unattainable. And he felt defeated and angry. And, of course, Luther's superiors could, could see how, how oppressed he was and how stricken he was. And so, you know, they, they, like people do, are trying to say, it's okay. You're beating yourself up. You, you can never do that. And so they tried to, to, to make him feel better about himself. And one of them urged him once, you know, Luther, just love God. And Luther replied, I do not love him. I hate him. You know, it's very sad to hear that, isn't it? To hear about a man who is so stricken, and, and, and our world's response, typically, to a guy like Luther would just to be to say, you know, it's okay. Everyone messes up. God will surely look over it. You're fine. And that's how we typically would think. But, but, but the reality is, is that Luther was right. He was right. Like, if he was going to earn heaven... If he was going to be in heaven someday, if he had to achieve the righteousness of God, then there was no room for compromise. He had to achieve it perfectly. And he understood that no matter how much he did, he was still a sinner who deserved wrath. And the truth is, is that you are too. You can never be good enough to earn a relationship with God. And you will never appreciate your need of salvation. And you will never appreciate the glory of the gospel until you come to grips with how hopelessly condemned your sin makes you before God. And that you, in yourself, deserve God's wrath. But with that background, we can rejoice that the gospel has power to save. Again, verse 16 says, it is the power of God for salvation. Now, now I said earlier that the gospel was foolish to the Romans. They valued strength and power. But, but the gospel, I mean, you show up in Rome and, and you're telling me that some guy that died just 
A Jew who died 30 years ago on a cross is, is powerful to save. And, and it might be a, a really moving, nice story. But to the Romans, there, there's no way that that's powerful to save. But of course, the resurrection changes everything. But Jesus didn't just die. He rose again and he conquered sin and death. And, and so the gospel is infused with God's power. And specifically, the gospel has power to save sinners. Now, now what exactly does that mean? Well, we'll look over at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9, tells us what it means that God saves sinners. It says there, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So, So God says there, That the gospel saves us from the wrath of God. God saves us from his own judgment. So so the gospel is the power of God for salvation because it rescues us from God's wrath. And and folks, that is an incredible gift, right? I mean, to, to imagine spending all of eternity under the judgment of God for the sins that I have committed is devastating. It is devastating to imagine God's wrath against my sin. But the gospel saves from the wrath of God. And therefore, therefore, that's a good reason for us not to be ashamed of the gospel. You know, sometimes we, 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 we go to share the gospel with people or we're thinking about sharing the gospel with people and, and sometimes we're, we're, we're ashamed of the gospel. And we, and we talk about the gospel like, like we're trying to convince someone to, be, to, to buy a beat-up, worn-out car. You know, we, we hope that just maybe they'll take it off our hands. Maybe they'll listen to us and maybe they'll accept it. And we have to remember that when you share the gospel, you are not sharing junk with people. You are sharing the power of God for salvation. And so be bold. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel can rescue any sinner. It can lift anyone out of any trouble and destruction because the power of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, stands behind the gospel. So the gospel is powerful to save. And then a second reason not to be ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is available to all people. The gospel is available to all people. Now look back at chapter 1, verse 16. And Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, now I already said that this fact was absurd to the Romans. I mean, this, Paul, Paul includes this statement. This is a statement that probably doesn't stand out to us, and if we were going to try and articulate the core truths of the gospel, we'd probably leave this one out because we just kind of assume this in our day. But, but that statement at the end of verse 16 is one that would have been absolutely ridiculous within the Roman power structure. And it wasn't just the Romans that didn't like it. The Jews didn't like it either. Because for centuries, salvation had come exclusively through the nation of Israel. But Jesus, of course, changed everything on the cross. He says here that the gospel is available to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. Which here is saying everyone outside the Jewish nation. It's not just that the gospel is available to the Jews, it is for all people. And Paul's going to argue in chapters 1 through 3 that it's not just that it's for all nations. It is also for all kinds of sinners. 
The gospel is for people who have lived a really religious and moral life, and we look at them as upstanding citizens. But the gospel is also for people who are pagans, who have done horrible things and sinned and and strayed far from God's will. And no one, though, has ever strayed so far or sinned so badly that they are beyond the reach of the gospel's power. I mean, God says, the gospel saves everyone who believes. Now, you might sit there and think, well, that's got to be too good to be true. I mean, I've, I've done some really bad things. And, and there's no way that, that God would ever really accept me and, and save me and love me. But, but Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves and then love us. He loved us in our sin. And the gospel can save anyone who believes, including you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. And that's another great reason not to be ashamed of the gospel. Well, sometimes we act as if certain people are outside the reach of Christ. Like, like you think of your neighbors, you think of your coworkers, and you think, you know, Joe over here would be a good person to share the gospel with because Joe might actually believe. Rick over here, he's a mess. And, and there's no way Rick is ever going to believe on Jesus. And, and so we don't share the gospel with him. You know, it's something else. Now, we would never say this as good Christians, but there's some people that we just don't like. You know, and, and so, you know, I mean, we think, why am I going to share the gospel with this jerk? And potentially have him, you know, get all angry at me. I don't care about, I don't care about this guy over here. And so we don't share the gospel with everyone. But folks, we need to understand that, that Jesus, I mean, I mean, Paul says that the core of the gospel is the fact that God is working to save every kind of person on the planet of the earth. And he is powerful to save. And so we need to share the gospel with all people without distinction and without shame, expecting that God is able to save. And then a third reason why we, need to not, why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel offers the righteousness of God as a gift. The gospel offers the righteousness of God as a gift. So verse 17 begins, for in it, speaking of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, now, we need to take some time here and, and really talk about this phrase, the righteousness of God, because it is very important. And it's, it's very important to what's coming in the next few chapters of Romans, and, and it's very important just, just to how we understand the gospel. So remember that I said in his, er, in his younger years, Martin Luther assumed that when he saw the righteousness of God in verse 17, that it was describing an attribute of God, that God is righteous, and therefore, what he, is saying, what he was saying in, in verse 17 is that to be saved, you must achieve the righteousness of God in yourself. And, and, and it was overwhelming for Luther to think, somehow, I have to achieve the righteousness of God. But as Luther studied Romans during his time at Wittenberg, he came to understand this verse very differently. And specifically, he came to understand that the good news of the gospel is not that it is up to me to achieve the righteousness of God. No, instead, the good news of the gospel is that God credits his righteousness 
to the sinner. That, that he imputes, he credits to me what I could never achieve in myself. He gives his righteousness to me. And, re, and Luther reached that conclusion. You might look at verse 17 and think, well, how did he get that? Not of verse 17. And he got that from, from what, what Paul goes on to say later in the book. So, so turn over to chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. All right, so, so a few minutes ago, we read verses 10 through 18. We saw that we are all sinners. And, and then notice Paul's conclusion in, in chapter 3, verse 20. He says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, or you could say declared righteous in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So so Paul says very clearly in that verse that I can never be declared right. I can never achieve the righteousness of God by my own goodness. But notice what he goes on to say in verses 21 and 22. He says, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, there's our key phrase, has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So so, so verse 22 is clear that when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's not just talking about an attribute. He is talking about something that God applies to the sinner by faith. That's abundantly clear in the verse. And and so God gives it to those who believe. He he applies his righteousness to us. Now, now you might wonder, well, well, didn't you just say that God is just? Like, how could a just God just zap us with this alien righteousness and go about his business. Like, doesn't God have to do, how, how does that fit his justice? But we'll look at what Paul goes on to say in chapter 3, verses 24 to 26. He says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Folks, those are incredible verses. And and then verse 25 mentions that concept of propitiation. We don't use that word very often. But propitiation refers to sacrifice or atonement. And it speaks of the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the punishment for our sin. He was our sacrifice. So he endured God's wrath against my sin and against yours. And in so doing, verse 26 says that God did not just justify me. He he did not just declare me righteous. What's he say? He says he also justified himself in forgiving sin. And that's important because the greatest demonstration of God's justice And the greatest demonstration of God's wrath is not that God sends sinners to hell. No, the greatest demonstration of God's justice and wrath is that he poured out his wrath on his only begotten son in the cross. And in the cross, Jesus bore the punishment for sin. He took the judgment that I deserve. God was so committed to his justice that he judged his only son. And in so doing, verse 26 says that God also became able to show grace 
Verse 26 says it isn't just that God is just. He is also the justifier of the one who believes in him. Now, now what does that mean? Well, well, when you think of the word justify, you, you should think of a courtroom. So imagine standing in the courtroom of God. God is the judge. And if God is going to judge you and determine whether you spend eternity in heaven or hell based on your righteousness, you are sunk. You have no hope. I mean, you might as well not even show up. Just walk right to the jail cell. Because you are not going to make it. But what justification means in the glory of the gospel is that I am no longer judged on my righteousness. No, instead, I am united to Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is credited to me so so that when God judges me, And when God determines whether I spend eternity in heaven or in hell, he will judge me on the righteousness of his son. And God will not turn away his son. I am justified in him. Now, now I want to be clear that that does not mean that I'm not still a sinner, right? Romans 4 or 5 says that God justifies the ungodly. So it's not that, you know, I I believe and all of a sudden, poof, I'm I'm good. And now God, God loves me because I'm so good. No, he justifies me while I am still ungodly. So I am declared righteous, even though, practically speaking, I'm still a sinner. I also think it's important to clarify that that this does not mean that that then I can just do whatever I want. You know, that, that I'm justified, I got my ticket to heaven, now yippee, I can live however I want, do whatever I want. Romans is going to make it very clear that that is a serious problem. But But regardless, I am secure. Because I stand in the righteousness of Jesus. Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's a precious thing. And that is the good news of the gospel. And when Luther understood and discovered that true meaning of the righteousness of God, it changed everything for him. And, and so I want to read this longer quote that, that Luther gave years later about his experience because it, it is so rich and, and provides such good perspective. So bear with me as I read through this. He, he later said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness or justice of God, or uh, yeah, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. 
For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger or ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud has been drawn across his face. Praise God for the gospel. And praise God for for the justification that we have, that we are not left to ourselves to try and and earn the favor of God and and to have God's righteousness hang over our heads as a cloud. That instead, if I'm in Christ, the righteousness of God becomes my best friend because it is credited to me. And again, that's a great reason not to be ashamed of the gospel. That the gospel reconciles the justice of God with the mercy of God and I have a relationship with him. That is good news. And then the fourth reason not to be ashamed of the gospel is that the gospel is applied by faith. The gospel is applied by faith. Now, Romans is going to be, is very clear that not everyone is saved. Now, otherwise, verse, chapter 1, verse 18 would not mention God's wrath against sinners. And, uh, and Paul would not need to preach the gospel in Rome. Why preach the gospel if everyone's already going to heaven? So, so maybe you're wondering, well, well, how can I go from being under God's wrath to enjoying this incredible grace of the gospel? Do I buy it? Do I say something? Do I do something? Well, well notice that verse 16 declares that salvation does not belong exclusively to a particular race or nation or social class or even to really moral religious people. No, to whom does this incredible salvation belong? It belongs to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. And verse 17 adds that that this righteousness is revealed, the righteousness of God comes to us from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by his faith. Now, now, I do need to mention there's some debate about what Paul means there exactly in verse 17 when he mentions from faith to faith. And so why does he have the two prepositional phrases? I think the best, the simplest answer to that question is that he is making an emphatic statement that we are saved by faith and by faith alone, that my works don't add anything to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So, so the only way that you can be saved The only way the righteousness of God can be credited to you is to put your faith solely and completely in what Jesus did on the cross. Now, that is not a saving work. That's an important clarification. So so all of you are sitting in chairs. And, And when you sat down in that chair after the last song, you trusted the chair, right? That it would hold you up, that it would not collapse under you because that'd be really embarrassing and maybe painful. You trusted in that chair, and now you're just resting in the chair. And that's what saving faith is. To be saved by faith is simply to rest in what Jesus has already done. And I think it's also important to emphasize that it requires trusting in Him alone. After all, if you're, if you're you know, there in your chair, but you're not, you know, you're, you're not quite sure about the chair, so you're trying to kind of, you know, Uh, trying to flex your legs a bit and hold up, you know, maybe a little bit of your weight yourself while also letting the chair hold part of your weight. You're not really resting in the chair. You're, You're trusting in the chair plus yourself. But the book of Galatians is clear that if I try to trust in the gospel plus my works, 
Like, I want to trust the chair, but I also want to trust me. I want to hedge my bets, so to speak. Then I lose the gospel entirely. The moment you add something to what Jesus did, the gospel is gone. And that is the fundamental problem with every religion in the world except gospel Christianity. And most, most religions of our world would, would, would affirm that the slogan of, of Luther's day, that God will not deny grace to those who do their best. So, so they believe that you need grace because you're not perfect, but man is ultimately saved by a combination of grace and works. But God says that is a denial of the gospel. That if you add anything as a basis for your ultimate standing with God to what Jesus accomplished on the cross, you dishonor Jesus and you reject the gospel. So maybe you are understanding the gospel today like you never have before. You've always thought, well, certainly I'm going to heaven because I'm a good guy. How could God possibly ever turn away from me? But, but, but you're hearing Luther's story and you're thinking about the justice of God and yeah, it makes sense. Like, there's no way I, I could ever measure up, and I am a sinner who deserves God's judgment. But maybe you also see the love and mercy of God in the fact that God judged your sin in Christ, and you ought to be saved. Our text is clear. All you have to do to be born again is to believe on Christ. So confess that He is Lord You have violated him, you have sinned against his will, and you want to trust in Christ and Christ alone to be saved. Or maybe you think, well, 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 my sin is just too great. My sin is too much for God to ever love and forgive a sinner like me. There is no way that God would, would give me that kind of gift by simply believing the gospel. Well, if that's where you're at, then just believe what God says. And he says in verse 16 that the gospel has power to save everyone who believes without distinction. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you may be, just believe. Rest in Christ. You can can pray to Christ right now and, and say, Lord, you are the Lord. And I have sinned against your will. I have violated your commandments and I deserve your judgment. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins I believe that his death is sufficient to save. I believe he rose again. And I trust in Christ for my salvation. And if you do that, Romans 10 verse 13 promises, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you seek God with true faith, he will save you. And so if you have never come to Christ for salvation, believe the gospel today. I know some of the details that I walked through today are a little bit complex. Maybe your, your head is still spinning and you're trying to wrap your brain around some of what it has to say. But well, then get those questions answered. Talk to me, talk to someone you trust, and believe on Christ. And in conclusion, the gospel really is good news. It has power to save. It is available to all people through faith. It offers the righteousness of God as a gift, and it is available simply by faith. And those are four convincing reasons not to be ashamed of the gospel. So think again of Paul walking into the city of Rome, or or think about the the Roman church there in this incredible, powerful city. You know, Paul knew that when he got to Rome and he began preaching the gospel among the Romans, some of them were going to mock him 
and look at him like, like he was an absolute moron. And, and, and they were going to think it was ridiculous and foolish. That can't possibly be so. But he also knew that the gospel is too good to keep quiet. People had to hear this incredible news. And he also knew that God had purposed to save people from every corner of the world, including Rome. So if Paul just set the gospel in front of them, if he preached to them, then he believed that God's spirit would convict, he would open eyes, and he would save. So Paul refused to be intimidated by the power, the glory, the philosophical assumptions of Rome. He refused to be ashamed of the gospel. He was determined to preach. And so should you. I mean, we have the best news that's ever been told. What what we have talked about today is the best news ever. It is wonderful. It is of eternal significance. And the gospel alone truly answers the the human's longing for for, for a clean conscience, for for rest, for security, for relationship to God. And and, and it's, it's for all people without discrimination, and it possesses real power. So people need to hear this message. So, so, so yes, it's true. Not everyone's going to accept it. You go out and share the gospel with people, they may look at you like you're strange. They may even get hostile with you. But who cares what people think? You know, if you're an ambassador for the king, you really don't care what people think because you have royal authority behind you. And that's who we are. We are ambassadors of Christ. So build gospel relationships this week. Invite people to church. We're going to share the gospel for five days with children during vacation Bible school. And let's fill this place up with as many lost kids as we possibly can. And plant seeds wherever you can. Share the gospel with those that you know. Be bold. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. And share the gospel then with confidence that the Lord of the harvest is going to save. There is nothing to be ashamed of. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Before we we pray and sing, I do just want to ask if if there's anyone here that, that you don't know that you're saved. You don't know that you're born again that you are ready to stand before the courtroom of God and, and you have questions or you'd like me to pray for you. If, that's, if there's anyone like that today, God's Spirit's at work in your heart, could you just raise your hand so that I can pray for you and seek you out? Is there anyone like that today? All right, Lord, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that you credit the righteousness of your Son to those who come to you by faith. And oh Lord, I pray for any here that do not know that saving power that today they'd be born again. And for those of us that know you as Savior, I pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, but that Lord, we would be eager and zealous to share it with all people in obedience to your will, for your glory, and for the good of everyone around us. And so, Lord, work among us and make us a a mighty army of gospel witnesses in our community. Use us to glorify your name. And God, use us to see people born again and added to the church. And so, God, give us grace this week to do your will, to be bold, courageous, wise, shrewd, 
all for the sake of your name and for your glory. In Christ's name, 